If you have your Bibles, if you would turn them to the book of Philippians, Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. We'll be looking today at chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. This is God's inerrant, infallible word. Please listen to it as I read it. Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we pray, O Lord, that you would now give us ears to hear this word, and you would give us hearts to obey it. In Christ's name, amen. This is a familiar passage to, to most of it. Most of us. Uh, this is a great autobiographical section of scripture in which Paul describes how his life was turned on its head as a result of meeting Christ. What was important to him before then suddenly became emphatically unimportant. What he thought was profit for his salvation, he now saw as loss. You know, if you've read the book of Philippians at all, you'll know that Paul has been dealing all along with uh, with various problems facing this small house church in Philippi, and which were threatening their joy in the Lord. And now he takes up another problem. He takes up this problem of the devastating false teaching attributed to a group called Judaizers. Now, apparently... We read in the text, he's spoken to this church before about this group. 
But he wants to repeat what he's told them because it's important that they completely understand what these false teachers were spreading around, and it wasn't very pretty. These Judaizers were a group of false teachers who kept following Paul around, preaching that Paul's gospel was fine, that it was okay, but that it didn't go far enough. They preached what I would call a Christ-plus message, that it wasn't enough just to believe in Christ. You also had to be circumcised. You had to follow Jewish ceremonies and rituals, worship in the temple, and you had to still maintain the old sacrificial system. And Paul uses pretty harsh and graphic language to describe these people. He calls them dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. And he contrasts their false religion with true religion by giving us in verse 3 a threefold definition of what constitutes a true Christian. First he says, you know, these Judaizers are, they talk about circumcision. They're always talking about circumcision. They're always telling you that you have to be circumcised and go back to these Jewish ceremonies and rituals and temple worship. But I tell you that you cannot worship by doing things that way. We are the real circumcision because we worship God by the Spirit of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, one thing it means is that true Christians worship God as a result of the operation of the Holy Spirit upon them. So that worshiping God, it's no longer a duty. It's a desire. In other words, we don't have to force ourselves to worship God. Instead, we're, we're conscious of being moved, of being led to worship. And let me just, just say that, that the way a Sunday morning worship service is put together can actually help or hinder us to do that. An effective worship service is one which turns our attention away from ourselves and the form of the service itself to God. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. C.S. Lewis was a member of the Church of England, and he was accustomed to what we might call a very liturgical service, high church. But Lewis never pleaded for liturgy. He asked merely for what he called uniformity, on the grounds that, that novelty in the worship service at best turns our attention to the novelty, and at worst, it turns it to the one who's enacting the novelty or the liturgy. Lewis wrote, As long as you notice and have to count the steps, you are not yet dancing, but only learning to dance. A good shoe is a shoe you don't notice. Good reading becomes possible when you need not consciously think about eyes or print or light or spelling. The perfect church service would be one we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. You see, I think that's what all pastors 
and all worship teams should strive for when putting together a worship service. Does what we do on Sunday morning allow us to worship God by the Spirit? Are we dancing or are we still just learning to dance? Paul also says in verse 3 that a true Christian glories in Christ Jesus. In other words, the second great test of our Christianity is our attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, the place which Christ occupies in our lives. And the point that Paul is making here is that we should boast or glory, not in ourselves, not in something else, but in Jesus Christ alone. Now, these dogs, these Judaizers, weren't like that. They boasted in something else. They boasted about the fact that they were Jews, that they'd been circumcised, that they kept the law, they worshipped in the temple. And you see, by doing that, they were detracting from the sole sufficiency of what Christ had done. They were threatening the doctrine and the way of salvation. And that really got Paul exercised. Paul insisted that the Christ he preached was the only and all-sufficient Savior of sinners. And the gospel he preached, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, was the only gospel which ensured acceptance before God and eternal glory. And dear ones, that should be our determination too. We should love truth as Paul did. And we should glory in Christ alone as he did. Well, the last characteristic of the Christian faith, which Paul mentions in verse 3, is that we put no confidence in the flesh. And he goes on and basically elaborates on that in the rest of the text. The first principle, you know, I spent a lot of years in the army. And the first principle of any good, effective strategy is to know your enemy. But these Judaizers obviously didn't know Paul very well. They picked the wrong guy to go up against. If these false teachers can make great claims for their so-called superior religion, Paul says he can make even greater ones. In verse 4, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. These false teachers claimed a certain religious superiority to and practices older than Paul's gospel. But you see, Paul is able to point to his own religious experiences. He's able to point to his own Jewish heritage and show that it's that it's far superior to the, uh, these false teachers. And he argues, look, I have all these things, but they're absolutely of no use to me. They profit me nothing. In verses 4 through 6, if you would look there, Paul lists seven things in his own life which might give him reason to have confidence in the flesh far beyond what these Judaizers could ever claim. The first thing that he says in verse 5 is that he was circumcised on the eighth day. You see, Paul was born into a Jewish family in which the regulations of the Old Testament were religiously kept. 
He was circumcised on the eighth day, and that marked him off from the Gentile world. Now, unlike some of these Judaizers, Paul was not a Gentile proselyte to the Jewish faith. He was a Jew by birth. He followed the the Jewish rituals to the letter. And at the proper time, he had gone through the ceremony, which initiated him into the covenant community. Circumcision was the most essential ritual in the whole Jewish religion. Certainly from a, a, a human perspective, it was a badge of righteousness. Verse 5 also says he was an Israelite. He was of the people of Israel by birth. Again, Paul hadn't come to Judaism out of the Gentile world. He was born into it. He was by birth a member of God's chosen people. He was a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's privileges were his by birthright. This was a heritage that the Jewish people relied on, along with circumcision for salvation. Furthermore, Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the most prominent tribes of Israel. You'll recall that Benjamin was the special son of Jacob and Rachel. He was the last of Jacob's sons to be born. He was the only one born in the promised land. Saul, Israel's first king, came from the tribe of Benjamin. So did Mordecai, used by God, along with Esther, to keep the Jews from being slaughtered. Jerusalem, the holy city, was within the boundaries of the tribe of Benjamin. And when the kingdom split... After Solomon's death, only Benjamin and Judah remained loyal to David's dynasty. That's that's a pretty hefty credential. And Paul had it. Paul was also a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul strictly maintained his family's traditional Jewish heritage. He spoke Hebrew. He was brought up in a Hebrew-speaking family. And so dedicated to this heritage and orthodoxy was his family that they shipped him off to Jerusalem from Tarsus to study under the great rabbi Gamaliel, who Dr. Luke tells us in Acts 23, thoroughly trained Paul in the law. That's pretty good pedigree. None of the Judaizers could ever come close to that. But you see, that wasn't all. All these grounds for confidence in the flesh that I've mentioned, those were inherited. But Paul had also earned a number of impressive credentials himself. Paul was so zealous for the law that he became a Pharisee. Now, of the various Jewish sects in that day, the Pharisees were the most intensely orthodox. R.C. Sproul says that they were the evangelicals. Of their, of their day. They strictly observed not only the revealed word of God, but a large body of human traditions which had been handed down to them and had become in their eyes almost as sacred as the written word itself. No first century Judaizer could outdo these Pharisees in their zeal 
for Old Testament religion. Paul also had more zeal than any other Judaizer. He had so much zeal for Judaism that he persecuted the church. He tracked Christians down and he put them in prison. He tried to get them to blaspheme Christ. He had voted for the death penalty for Christians. He'd witnessed their execution. Here was zeal, which far outstripped the zeal of any Judaizer. As to righteousness, which the law demanded, he was outwardly blameless. Now, he wasn't saying, Paul wasn't saying that he was sinless. But if anybody observed his life, they would have concluded that his behavior was blameless. By all outward appearances, Paul was to the people who knew him a model Jew who lived by Jewish law. That was a pretty good pedigree, wasn't it? Paul seemed to have it all. He had undergone the proper rituals and ceremonies. He was an Israelite, God's chosen people. He was from the favored tribe of Benjamin. He'd maintained his Jewish heritage. He was a devout Pharisee. He was zealous to the point of persecuting Christians. And he rigidly conformed to the outward requirements of Judaism. Yet he came to see all that as useless for salvation. When the reality of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ was revealed to him. But there's, there's even more here. I want you to see clearly that these things were much more than useless. They were deadly for Paul because they, you see, they actually gave him a false sense of security that he was right with God when in fact he wasn't right with God at all. You know, as I looked at this story, I believe that there were two major incidents in Paul's life which turned him away from confidence in the flesh into a confidence in a righteousness which comes from God in Christ through faith. I think first the first incident was the death of Stephen. I think the death of Stephen, which he saw, which he witnessed, had a profound impact on Paul. For the first time in his life, Paul witnessed a contemporary whose righteousness surpassed his own, whose love for the faith of the Old Testament and whose appreciation of the prophets pointed him toward Christ rather than away from Christ. Stephen was a young man who was prepared to die for his risen Lord. And in dying, he had displayed the grace, the forgiveness, the certainty of salvation to which the Old Testament in every single place bore witness. Stephen the martyr had experienced what all the zeal and law-keeping of Saul of Tarsus could not uh, bring. Stephen had Christ, and that was everything. Saul had only, he had only the bare bones of Pharisaic legalism. Without Christ, he had nothing. And I think that the, the stoning of Stephen for the first time 
made him start to realize that. And of course, the other major event in his life was his personal face-to-face encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road. Paul had spent all his life accumulating what he believed were personally earned brownie points that would achieve salvation for him. But when he met the risen Christ, he realized that all those things weren't assets at all. They were liabilities, which had actually kept him from Christ. I think he realized in one flashing moment of insight that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And these things on which he had been building, his hopes for eternity, these things which gave him status and standing in the eyes of others, and caused them to look upon him with great admiration, he now saw in their true light as utterly worthless and polluted garments, unfit to cover him before the eyes of a holy God and deserving only to be cast away. And what did he do? He threw them away. He exchanged them all for the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. It's an interesting exchange. I think it's it's introduced uh, to us uh, in verse 7 by that wonderful little word, but, in verse 7. And the words which follow that little adversity express the central ambition of Paul's life from that day on. And they also take us to the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul calculates the true worth of all these so-called advantages, which I just covered in verses 4 through 6, and he does it in terms of a balance sheet. He shows assets and liabilities. He has learned, he says, to count all the assets he had earned before he knew Christ as liabilities and to enter into his new column of assets the name of Jesus Christ alone. Starting in verse 7, Paul says that everything he had counted on before as profit or gain was actually a loss. It was a detriment to him obtaining salvation. He repeats it three, uh, in three different ways in verse 8. He uses the word counted there. You know, would you agree that people today think they're just as good or, or better than the next guy? You know, I I think they do. That seems to be a fairly standard attitude of, of, of most people. But I want to suggest to you that this is a very dangerous way of thinking. Primarily because it leads us, it tends to lead us to conclude that what we are and what we do somehow makes us more acceptable to God. And that will cause him to let us into his heaven. The terrible truth, however, is that having confidence in the flesh will not get us into heaven. It actually disqualifies us from heaven. What we think is profit with God is actually loss. And that, I think that's the point in verses 7 and 8. When Paul met the risen Christ 
on the way to Damascus. He was overwhelmed with just how futile his life was without Christ. He saw very clearly, I think, that he was building castles in the air. And now that those castles had all crumbled, he lived from that point on with a heart keen, uh, that keenly felt the predicament of all those people around him who continued to make the same mistake from which he had been delivered. You know, I think verse 7 is sort of a summary verse of the dramatic change that took place in Paul's worldview when he met Christ. You see, all his cherished treasures in his gain column suddenly became deficits. And Paul, seeing this, yielded up everything to Christ. You see, no knowledge could now compare with the knowledge of Jesus. It meant union with him, fellowship with him, in which all that Jesus had done was brought into his life by the working of the Holy Spirit. And you see, by God's marvelous grace, those things he wrongly imagines would give him eternal life. All of those things were replaced by three matchless benefits that were his in Christ. The first benefit is justification. Great word. Verse 9 says that Paul is now found in Christ. He no longer tried to approach God on the basis of who he was or what he had done. None of that mattered. He now approached God clothed in the righteousness of his risen Savior. You know, in Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul declared that God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul had been declared righteous with what, with, with what theologians call an alien righteousness. His sin was imputed to Christ. And Christ's righteousness was imputed to him. Dear ones, this is the very heart of the gospel. We simply cannot get this wrong. We need to grasp the full implication of this justification. It's God's declaration about us. It depends solely on what Christ has done and not one scintilla on any of our works. The gospel to Paul consists precisely in this, that we do nothing to earn our salvation or to secure it for ourselves. God in Christ does it all. We can't add to it or subtract from it. It doesn't depend on our keeping the law. It depends on God's gift of his Son. It can't be reversed. It can never be destroyed. And it's secured only through faith, which is to believe and trust in what Christ has done for us. And this faith itself is a gift of God. You know, I've mentioned this to you before, but I think the best shorthand definition of full justification that I've run across is this. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone on account of what Christ alone has done. That 
dear ones, is how God saves sinners. The second surpassing benefit of knowing Christ is ongoing sanctification. It says in verse 10 that Paul longed to experience the power of Christ's resurrection. He knew that there was no power in the law. There was no power in his own flesh to overcome sin or serve God. He knew that. But because he had been given faith in Christ and had Christ's righteousness imputed to him, Paul also knew that he had the Holy Spirit and the same spiritual power that raised Jesus from the dead. See, Paul gladly exchanged his impetus for Christ's resurrection power. And he wanted to experience that power in all of its fullness every day of his life. Well, very quickly, I'm running out of time. The third benefit of knowing Christ is that we can anticipate glorification. The end result of our fellowship with Christ is that by any means possible, we will attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, I know that some of your translations use the word somehow here in verse 11, which is okay, but it it tends to indicate that Paul may have had doubts that Christ could, in fact, pull this resurrection thing off. But that's not the case. You know, Paul is not doubting here that Christ can raise him and glorify him. I think what's happening here, he's simply amazed that God would do this in somebody like himself, somebody so full of sin and imperfections and and weaknesses. So I think this phrase actually represents not doubt, but Paul's humility. It's like he's saying, you know, how in the world, how in the world can this be possible? How can this happen to somebody like me who's such a sinner? And you know, it's interesting, this sense of unworthiness never left Paul. One other place, 1 Corinthians 15, he wrote, For I, the least of the apostles, am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Well, that's, in brief summary, tells the difference, the fundamental difference between Saul of Tarsus on the one hand and Paul the apostle on the other. You see, for the unconverted Saul, he was absolutely sure that he would be saved and be among the people of God on the day of resurrection. After all, he had every reason to have confidence in the flesh. He had inherited so many things. He had achieved so much. But then came his crash on the Damascus Turnpike. And all these gains became losses. All these confidence boosters lay in tatters on the ground. Now he knew that in and of himself, he was utterly unworthy of God, of heaven, of salvation. But you see, Christ sought him out. Christ humbled him. And Christ saved him. Is it any wonder that all Paul ever wanted to know was Christ. This chief of sinners longed to know him intimately. He couldn't get enough of Christ. He was literally intoxicated with Christ. So my question is, is is that what you want to know too? I hope it is. 
And I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice this morning has had a Damascus Road crash and that it was absolutely fatal to your confidence in the flesh. You know, I pray that such a change has occurred in Paul, has has occurred in you. You see, Jesus Christ can turn a Saul into Paul. He can turn Simon the braggart into Peter the rock. He can transform John the son of thunder into John the evangelist. And you, whoever you are, whatever you may have done, Christ can turn into the kind of person in whom his holy and loving character can be seen. He can do it. He will do it. So let me close with this. Matthew 19 records the story of another man who came to the same crossroads as Paul. You know the story. It's the story of the rich young ruler. And in reply to this man's question about how to get eternal life, Jesus told him to obey the law. And you remember what the man said. In response, the young man sort of arrogantly said, No problem. All these things I've kept. What do I still lack? You see, like Paul, he too had his spiritual prophet column filled with self-effort, religious ritual, and works righteousness. He thought he had it all. But unlike Paul, he counted these things as gain. And Christ tells us that the man went away sorrowful, having rejected Christ. Paul counted these same things as loss, as rubbish, as excrement, as dumb. And he gained Christ and eternal life. Dear ones, every living human being at one time or another stands at these same crossroads. Maybe some of you here this morning are standing at that crossroads this morning. People can cling to their religious credits their birthrights, their personal achievements, their self-righteousness. And they can follow this rich young ruler to eternal damnation and destruction. Or they can forsake them in favor of the surpassing benefit of knowing Christ Jesus and follow Paul onto the narrow path that leads to eternal life. You know, as we sang earlier in that wonderful, great hymn by Augustus Toplady, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. May God make it so in every heart this morning. Amen and amen.